My name's Rob Warner. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out of the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, episode 29. And today we're speaking to Rob Warner. Yeah, I'm Rob. Thanks for, for having me on today. So I'm a fairly ordinary guy, I suppose. It's just had a very fortunate career where something I didn't even think was a job turned out to be something that was a job. Um, so I've spent the last 20 years designing sportswear, including uh, products that have been worn by some successful football teams, some less successful football teams, some incredible athletes. Um, and it's taken me to live all over the world, which has been, yeah, a bit of a, well, a lot of a blessing. And also sometimes it's felt like a little bit of a curse as well. So, yeah, quite a lot of ground for us to, to cover today. As is the usual custom, I am joined by the main two men, Anthony Olsen, Ryan Pulford. We're inside. The weather outside is looking... It's frightful. Not, yeah, it's, it's looking frightful. <laughs> but, you know, I'm feeling warm and cosy inside with you two, if, you know, distanced socially so to speak and um, how are we boys anthony how are we we just giving us a little rendition of your soon to be released christmas album oh yeah um just practicing that in the shower this morning lovely what an image what an image yeah how yeah. are we how's um, your week been good yeah all right i made some muffins the other day oh what, nice. what variety uh white chocolate chip muffins oh, uh, are they in your bag are they you getting them out no I, I well i've eaten them oh. <laughs> surprise not, surprise there's not, not much else to do is there no Ryan, how are you? Obviously devastated he hasn't bought any chocolate chip muffins with him. But, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. But nice and relaxed from his dulcet tones. Yeah, they were yeah. good, weren't they? Yeah. They were lovely, to be fair, mate. Thanks, mate. Didn't well know done. he had that in his locker. No, well, you know what? I, 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 look, at, I look at Ant and I do think he, he stinks at the, the sort of cruise ship circuit in his mid-50s. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me so much. Um, anyway, enough of that. Today, we've got Rob Warner and we've got a bit of an opening question. Now, Rob Warner is a, a kit designer, designs football kits. So, what I'm going to ask both of you two is, what is the favourite kit that you've had that you owned, probably as a child? Hmm. Um, and I'm looking at you first. Okay. What's, what's the favourite kit that you've had in your in your, in your in your hands? So, difficult, isn't it? Because most, most of them are, are going to be like Tramia kits that I've had. Um, uh, so, I went for an England one. Ooh. And it is the uh, reversible uh, England shirt. Which one? Uh, it was the one where it was the reverse was like dark blue on the shoulders yes. and a different badge. That was Euro two thousand and four. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. it's lovely shirt. Absolutely yeah. lovely. I like that we had a reversible shirt that was white on one side and white on the other side. Yeah, but there was differences done. Yeah, but and then when you popped the little collar up, you could see like the St George's flag, and uh, it was at yeah, the time where yeah, that yeah. wasn't like a, a weird thing to have. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It hadn't been kind of ruined. Ru- yeah, yeah, ruined being the operative word. Did you have the full kit of that? Uh, we would have been young enough to be sporting full kits then. I think sixteen years ago. No, I don't think I had the full. I think I just had the shirt. But that's, do you have a name on the back? No, no, no. 
No. No, 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 name. Name, no name on the back. No. 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 I suppose you couldn't go Olsen because people would get Yeah, be like, who's that? He didn't play for England. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan, same question to you, pal. Yeah. Um, the Inter Milan Pirelli kit, about 2002. It was just oh. amazing. Full kit? Do you know what? I think I went through a weird phase of having like the top and the socks because I just love footy <laughs> socks and not the shorts. I don't know why. Um, just running run around with your little I just, <laughs> I just remember the the top. It was like the the purple, black, and it had a little bit of trim, like a yellow. Yeah, on it the did. Trim. Yeah, oh, Vacoba. Name the, na- name on the back. Vacoba. Oh, I think, the yeah, I think so. I think so. That's yeah. lovely. It's a lovely yeah. old one. That is yeah. excellent. Top work, fellas. Um, I was also going to go for an England one, mm. but I think it was a little bit later than the one you went for, and I think it was the one for the 2006 World Cup, and I always liked it because I got Ryan Taylor on the back of it. Remember when Ryan Taylor was around there? Yeah, but he didn't play for England. No, but he, he got in. He played for the under-21s, I think. Oh. And, uh, and I was like, ah, oh, he's definitely going to play for England. Then. So I got R. Taylor on the back of it. Uh. But I, I, got, he, I got it in the summer before he left, before he got, he, he left. And uh, and I wore it to a pre-season friendly at Vauxhalls, and I went up to him. And I said, hey, "Ryan, can you you sign me shirt?" And I turned round, and I'm, I'm fairly certain he was stood next to Jason McAteer. He could have been, it might have been someone else. It was another player anyway. And as I turned round, the other player just started laughing loads, <laughs> proper giggling. And and then he was like, "Oh yeah, sound, uh, yeah." I, I like thinking I was taking the piss or something. <laughs> but I had this Ryan Taylor signed shirt for ages. It was like my prized possession. You Wait, still got it? Um, might be in my mum somewhere, but no. I, I And like, I used to play in it and like the, the signing started to get a bit worn. Oh. I well, saying, I had, um, do you know the Tramia kit when you got to Wembley? Yeah. Love that kit. Which year, mate? We go all the time. <laughs> the, the, the League Cup final yeah. one with the stripes. And I had it signed by all the players. And then I give it to me cousin, who <laughs> lives down this. south, <laughs> to make him a Tramia fan. And I was actually looking at old photos yesterday, and I was waving it, and I was like, "Really want that top, and I'm never gonna see it again. No, gone forever. Probably worth about a million quid now as well. It's fuming. Probably not a million. Doesn't even like footy, my cousin. I don't think either. It's even worse. <laughs> anyway, moving on to Rob Warner. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. First Paul to call is Ryan, do you want to tell the listeners uh, why we wanted to, to speak to Rob? Yeah, well, we often tell people to slide into our DMs, and he's probably the only person who has, to be honest with you. So he, he approached us and said if he could be of any help or if he could get involved in any way. And I think the more we looked into him, we realised well, actually he'd be a very interesting person to speak to. I think he's probably one of the most successful but least known of our guests, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and what he's achieved is quite extraordinary, really, when you start learning about a story. And he achieved it at quite a young age as well. I mean, he's still achieving it today. But a lot of his, um, well, you'll hear in the interview, a lot of the things he's done in his life, he, he was still only in his 20s. So, yeah, a really interesting bloke who, who came across us before we came across him, but we're glad he did. Yeah, 100%. And... And we always have a theme. Would you like to tell the, the lovely listeners what uh, what the theme is for, yeah. for this episode, mate? Yeah. So I uh, I saw this this theme written down before I uh, before I listened to the interview because I wasn't on it, and I went, 
from cigars with Stoitskoff being scared of leaving the house. And I was like, that must be some story. I was like, cigars with Stoitskoff. And I got to the bit where it was like that. I was like, oh my God, this actually happened. Yeah, pure smoke-filled room. <laughs> Stoitskoff just sat there chilling. And uh, yeah, listening to this interview, it's just so, it's so nice, refreshing to hear someone come out and be so honest about what they've gone through and what they're going through and what they're, they're hoping to achieve and what they're, what they're still, still achieving as well. And I, I think there's a point in the interview where he, he's talking about, you know, lockdown situations and stuff like that. And I really resonated with it, to be honest. A bit about it, um, trying to work, yeah. to work with his with his, with his his children. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's just it's quite comforting to know that someone else is going through something like that as yeah. well. It's just because it's difficult. It's difficult for all of us for, for many reasons. But yeah, it, it was really nice. And yeah. I think that theme is, is perfect, really, yeah. for that interview. Absolutely, and obviously you'll you'll get to that bit in in the interview. Lovely listeners, I feel like I should come always. Lovely listeners, oh, they are, yeah, they are very yeah. lovely, aren't they? Ryan's nodding for the purpose for the purposes of the tape. <laughs> Ryan is nodding. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that's enough nonsense from us. You're listening to Man Marking. This is Rob Warner's interview, and we will see you on the other side. You never really thought you this was something you'd you'd get into the the design aspect of manufacturing of kits. Your Twitter bio reads "Design of kit worn by World Cup and Olympic champions." So, can you sort of talk us through your passion for design and, and how that really all started? For me at university, I um, I was studying fashion design with technology, and as part of that, at the time it was compulsory that your third year was a year in industry, and then your fourth year was you came back and did your, your final collection. So I went out into industry and I was actually ironically supposed to go to Umbra. Um, and at the last minute they got bought out or something happened. So I ended up with no work placement. Um, and I got taken in by um, Carrymore at the time. They were still privately owned. They weren't owned by Sports Direct. And so they they brought me in for a placement and I, I just got loads of responsibility working for a tiny company. So from there, I, I met a few people with the, the work I was doing. And then when I came to uh, towards graduation, then it was um, I was looking for jobs. And there was a, a job at Puma's UK office that were just doing account specific products for JD and JJB at the time and, and retailers like that. Um, and a fella that I'd met through my time at, at Carrymore knew somebody that was part of the recruitment process for that role. So he put a good word in for me and I, I got an interview and yeah, they, they took me on, but it was, it was pretty crazy that I started on, I graduated, I think a week later I started the job, started on the Monday down in Leatherhead, flew out to Germany on the Tuesday to go to headquarters for meetings and, and meet the main design team. Um, and whilst I was out there, saw the guy that was designing the football kit. So at the time it was, Poland, Cameroon and Lazio were probably the, the big three that, that Puma were working with. Um, and it totally blew me away. And then I, I flew back on the Thursday night. And then on the following Monday, I was back in the office for my first full week in the office. And I got called into the, in by the gaffer and he said, oh, you know, the, the team in Germany, the, the fellow that's designing the football kits actually wants to come back to England. So they've suggested would you be interested in the role and we'll do a job swap with with you so within a week i was like wow i've got to choose now if i want to go and live in germany um so 
went through went through that process and, and figured that out and three months later ended up moving out to Nuremberg and stayed there for six years. Culturally, obviously you missed your family, but how, how did you find that? Um, like learning the language, you're still very young. I'm, I think a lot of your achievements in the first six years, what, what was your 28 when you left Germany? Um, yeah, tw- or 27, not quite 28. Yes. A lot of responsibility was put on your toes straight up from university, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think not just in terms of the work perspective, but from a, a life perspective as well. So I, I was uh, I was with somebody at the time. We'd been together a year and we had to make the choice, you know, do we do we stay together or not? Do we move out there together or not? And, you know, she kind of put her career on ice for a little while and, and, and said, yeah, I'll, I'll come out there with you, um, you know, which was an amazing thing for her to do, um, you know, but then moved out there and I was earning, I don't know, like 18 grand a year or something, which, you know, I, I guess is it's all relative. But at, at the time for me, I was paying out my student loans and my student credit cards and, and she wasn't working either. And, you know, it was, it was pretty tough, really, trying to make ends meet, trying to, you know, look after the two of us. And, I mean, we moved into a, into a pad over there and we had to buy everything to to kit the place out and you know it was it was crazy i remember there was because there, there weren't many places over there that at that time that would take credit cards it was all the the, the, the shops were very much based on cash or or debit cards um and there was one shop out there called Karstadt, which i guess would be like the equivalent of when I was sort of House of Fraser or something like that, but they had an amazing food hall in there with, that was the only place really that you could get like proper baked beans and decent crisps and things like that, as well as all the delicatessens they'd got in there. But I got to the point where I could only buy my groceries with my credit card. So I was going into the fanciest shop in town to do my grocery shopping just because I was skint and it was the only place I could use a credit card. So like that first 12 months was super hard. Um, I spoke a little bit of German. I'd done it up to GCSE level and, and got a C in German. But at the time, I was like, I'm never going to need this. It was just at school we had to do a modern language. Um, and that came back to bite me in the arse when I ended up living over there. I was like, I probably should have paid a bit more. <laughs> um, you know, but it, but it helped. And it, it turns out that I did have a bit of an aptitude for the language. So I was able to to pick it up um and i was really fortunate that i worked with some some great people that it never felt at least until we got to that world cup year it never felt like a real pressure it was more of a privilege really i was working with some really talented people the brand was in the process of of starting to fly we wish to take risks you know whether it was through Cameroon or you know whoever else we were working with it was like let's just do it let's just have a go at it and see what happens and most of what we did came off um do you so know what I love about that story Rob when you said proper food and then said baked beans and crisps after it I was expecting you to say <laughs> sort of like fresh fish and things like that oh that yeah was, uh... of course they've got all that and you know <laughs> and so everything are you, are you responsible for the the skin tight Italian look that they went for. I used to love that. Nah, so that that was that uh, yeah, that was uh, Kappa project. They've kind of made that their thing now. But kind of when we went in there, so we went over to Italy to 
to pitch for the contracts. There'd obviously been a lot of talk already of of kind of the financial side of it, but I was asked to go over when the leadership team went to actually talk to them about product. Um, and they were very, I mean, they'd had a, a relationship with Kappa for a long time. It was an Italian brand. So it was a, you know, I think they'd had Nike for a little while, but they'd had Diodora as well. So they were largely, they'd worked with Italian brands. So for us to show up there as a German brand and be like, right, you know, this is what you need to be wearing was difficult but something that we kind of focused on in that conversation was that during the 2002 world cup um there was i think i think it was vieri went up for a header against south korea this is showing my geekish knowledge of football now but he went up for a header and i think that the defender had got hold of a good chunk of his shirt and them shirts were so stretchy that he was able to keep hold of him and the area headed it over the bar and they went on to get beat and and that was that um that was the um the fellow who scored the winner got sacked by his club didn't he because he played in italy that's right that's right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was crazy i mean the referee the, 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 the referee was a bit suspect in that game it must be said yeah he was definitely yeah. um helping to write the fairy tale he, he certainly was, but it was yeah. some tournament that, and I think I, I actually can picture Christian Vieri wearing that shirt now. I always yeah. think of Fabian Grosso for some reason, but I think he scored the winning penalty. That was two thousand six. Uh, yeah, was was yeah. a big moment. So the kind of the the link between those two tournaments was when we went in to present what they would wear for two thousand and six, which was it was slim fit but not tight. It was. It was pretty much a shirt that had been designed back to front because it was all about aerodynamics and lightweight and speed. Um, and one of the things that we'd looked at was putting a lot less stretch into the shirt. So if if an opponent grabbed it, they couldn't keep hold of it. Um, so there was enough stretch for the guy wearing it to move, but there wasn't enough stretch for somebody to kind of hold it in their hands and get a good grip of it. Um, you just wouldn't think that, you wouldn't even realise as, as a sports fan that, especially back i know it's not that long ago but um things do change quite quickly that that thinking went into the design of a kit people just assume it's what it looks like don't they not so much the yeah. how, how breathable is the material and all those type of things that come with it yeah and i, I think a, a lot of kits are designed from a, a visual perspective i mean the the reality is that there's there's only so much that fabric can do for you you know if you're playing in if I think back to that World Cup in Germany, it was like the hottest summer I experienced out there. It was absolutely cooking for about three months. So the best fabric in the world's not going to keep you dry in, in those conditions if you're running around. So it's then how do you make it more comfortable and what other advantages can you can you give to the athlete? And so the big one there was going in to, to talk to the Italian Federation and saying, well, at the last World Cup, you got beat because the guy had, had got a big hold of the shirt. If he'd been wearing this, the defender wouldn't have been able to hold him and he would have scored. Um, yeah. And it was as simple as that. You know, that was the conversation and they were like, okay. <laughs> Sport at the elite level, it's it's all about marginal gains, isn't it? And that's down to the kit. And was there ever an element of other teams not happy with the fact that you were using or you were designing multiple kits for the teams who may possibly face each other? Did that ever come into the thinking at all? 
Yeah, I mean, because we'd always tried to be wary of going down the route of what most fans call templates. Um, and I, th I think the way we approached it was if the question is get players to the ball faster, then there's only really one right answer. So template or not, this is either going to be the, the most functional shirt we can build or it isn't. Um, and so we kind of knew that that was going to happen, but then we were very conscious of for most of the guys that were going to be wearing those kits at the tournament, this was going to be the highlight of their career, maybe the highlight of their life. So if it was going to be, you know, Switzerland against Tunisia, who were two teams that had red and white as home and away kits, then how could we make that stand out? So something we talked about was if they're lining up for the national anthem and they've got their hand on their heart so the badge is covered, how will we still know who they represent? So we we took the the approach then of if you look at the kits for, for that tournament, every country had its own um, very unique graphic and it was something that was really iconic to the country. So um, Senegal had... Um, a baobab tree on the on the front of the shirt which you know we did the research and we spoke to people in in different countries and you know a lot of the stuff seemed pretty obvious of like well tunisia will have an eagle because the eagles of carthage is what they're called so we'll we'll work with that and then when senegal came back with like right ours is a tree we were like okay <laughs> we'll have a go at that <laughs> we presented the designs to the uh it was the the coach and the assistant coach actually flew over to to Nuremberg to see it. We met them at the airport and we talked them through the concept and then we showed them the kit and it had got this baobab tree on the front of it and the assistant coach started crying and he was just like, you know, I can't believe that you've figured something out that's so iconic to our country and you've put it on the front of our shirt. But we even used the native tongue of each country to put the country names on the back of the shirt, uh, sorry, on the back of the jackets, the anthem jackets. Um, so I think Tunisia and Iran were written in Arabic uh, on the back of the shirts. And then um, for, for other countries that were French speaking, it was written in French. Um, one that was really embarrassing at the time was we went over to um, Sophia to present the the kit designs to to the Bulgarian FA and at that time Christo Stoichkov was the was the, the national coach and we'd been out with the Cameroon national team the night before in Hamburg um, got to bed about four and then had to get up at five to fly out to Bulgaria so I was a bit green around the gills when I walked in there <laughs> and you've got like Stoichkov and all his mates sat there smoking cigarettes, the like of which I'd never seen. I don't think you could snap them in half with your bare hands. They were so <laughs> and They're all sat there and I've, I've walked in and done the presentation and we've talked through it and there were plenty of talking points about, you know, any anything and everything that could be picked up on was debated. And then we got to the bit of, you know, well, here's the now, I forget what the national icon was on the shirt, but then here's the jacket with, Bulgaria written on the back and and it was written in Cyrillic so of course we couldn't read it but we'd taken it off the off the badge that was on the shirt so you know we were super proud of like you know look at this we've done it in Cyrillic and they've all burst out laughing um and it, it we, we fit they finally told us when they'd managed to 
kind of stop crying. The, the badge says Bulgarian Football Federation. So the jackets didn't say Bulgaria. They said Bulgarian. <laughs> so that was hilarious. And But coming away, I was like, I wish I'd thought of that. Well, imagine if it had, if you had a jacket that said like Irish or English or French or something. Yeah. You know, it's kind of even more of a marker than just the country name. <laughs> but uh, I, anyway, I, to be honest, I, I've I've gone into this interview thinking you're you're in a dusty factory most of the day, or you're in front of your computer on a graphics uh, design. But the fact that you actually go on the lash with Samuel Eto and then go to meetings with Stoichkov, it, it's quite an eye opener to what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's they're they're the bits I talk about. That's like the one percent that keeps me relatively sane but no i mean that whole that whole trip of we went across multiple destinations in a week to go and meet with different federations and present kits we started off in tunisia and they just won the africa cup of nations so we've i mean even that we we got out there we flew with tunis air to get out there and i'd never i'd never flown business class before and for that leg of the flight we were in business class and it was mad. It was like, I don't know, if you, if you would say to somebody, right, do a comedy sketch of what an African airline would have been like in business class in the 70s. Well, that's what it was like. So we were basically <laughs> sat in like armchairs and they they brought the food out. And it was like lamb chops in garlic butter and stuff. And I just blew my mind. So I'm like, right, I'm having these lamb chops. And I've, I've put all these chops away. And then as soon as we've got there, because we were landing quite late, Got there about 10 o'clock at night and there's the fella from the federations come to pick us up like oh the president of the federation's waiting for you in like the most prestigious restaurant in the whole of tunis so i had to go in there and like bash a load of falafels and stuff as well with a full <laughs> so yeah it was, it was and that was the start of the trip by the end of it i was a broken well actually on the way back so i forget where we'd been last and we, we flew back through i think vienna and the the plane from Vienna to Nuremberg was this tiny little. Do you remember the kits you could buy as a kid that they were flat and it was like polystyrene aeroplanes and you just slot them together and oh yeah yeah basically one of them to oh. to fly back and I was the only person in business class on the whole flight and but the business class seat was at the front next to the stewardess facing the back so I'm sat there with a hangover and I'm like well, I've got to eat something here or I'm going to faint. So, so I've accepted the breakfast, but I'm sat there just eating it in front of everybody else. Who's got no food. And I was just a joke of a man sitting there trying to eat this food. <laughs> I love that. Take like, a look at what you could have won. Yeah, totally. You just sat there eating in front of everybody. I mean, there's some fast, fantastic stories in there, but I'm, I'm conscious that there were moments that you mentioned that it was difficult, especially that first time in Germany. In terms of, like, a lot of people may have just got a plane home and there wouldn't have been sort of any shame in that, but you stuck by it and you might have went in the toilets every day crying for the first year, but ultimately you, you made a huge success out of it and you must owe a lot of that to sort of the, the life experience that that gave you, moving away from home, being in important meetings in your early to mid-twenties. It, it must have really moulded you as a person at that stage in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the being involved in football aspect of it was, you know, that was massive. I think if it had just been designing clothes, you know, it might have been different. But 
I think the other factor was, and it's it's pretty typical for most businesses when you move abroad, and unless you've been moved kind of within the company, is that you you move out there, and then if you don't stay for twelve months, then you have to pay back some of the moving costs because um, obviously they invest a lot of money, and if you bail out after a month, then you know they've they've spent all that money on shipping your furniture and whatever although there wasn't didn't cost them much to ship mine <laughs> but you know so i was very conscious of that that I, I couldn't really afford to leave even if it had got so desperate that i'd wanted to um and i kind of wonder if part of me was that was why a year was so significant because that had passed and then i was like oh, i can leave whenever i want now and there wasn't i wasn't putting that pressure on myself that you know i've got no choice i'm stuck um you know because it was I mean, as an experience, it was it was just incredible. We had a great group of people in Germany. The broader business was flying. Um, when we had get-togethers once a year for, we called it design camp, which is everything you could imagine it to be just from the name. Um, so we would we'd all get together and you know be creative and party and whatever else. And I remember. At the time, there was um, a guy who was president of footwear called Gavin Ivester, who, I mean, you've talked about my CV. If you were to look at his, it's, it's incredible. He worked on the first Apple laptop. He's been creative director at Nike, president of footwear at Puma. He's worked at Gibson Guitars. He's now at Bang & Olufsen, you know, amazing. And he, and he stood there in the room and, and he said, take a look around the room. You will never be in a room with such a high level of talent ever again in your career he was like this is this is some team and it was like 50 60 people in there that were all working on different product types and had traveled from all over the world and i don't know i guess reflecting on it, it's probably the closest i've come to what it might be like being in a dressing room before a big game or something because the business was flying but the expectations start to rise as well because you know it's like well wow we posted 40% growth year on year, we, you know, we, we've got to do that again. It's like, well, we're 40% bigger now, so that's not going to be easy. Yeah. So, to hear but, that. But then the, where everybody ended up working in, you know, 10, 15 years later, when we look back on it, he was right. You know, we did some great products, and the majority of those people have gone on to have outstanding careers. So, so growing up then as, as a footy mad lad, um, watching Mark Bosnich somehow not get sent off against Tramier in a League Cup semi-final, did, <laughs> was that like a case of because you were working in football that you sometimes, when it was difficult, remind yourself, well, you're fortunate here and I know you've worked hard to get that opportunity, but this is what you want to do. And, and there's almost, if it wasn't football, as you mentioned, maybe you would have just stopped it earlier on. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I think there was. I still remember the first time I saw a kit that I'd designed, and it was I was sitting in a bar in Nuremberg, and we'd got some friends over from England, and there was there was a big screen behind where we were sitting, but I was I was facing it, um, and the highlights came on, and there were Stuttgart in something that I'd designed, and it it just didn't. It didn't really compute. It was like, oh, wow, there it is. I mean, obviously, I knew they were wearing it that day and knew that I'd designed it. But it just seemed so bizarre. And even now, you know, looking at some of the kits that I've worked on and talking to people that have got special memories of those kits, even if for me it was 
you know, obviously Italy's a special one, but some of them were, you know, were just part of what I was doing. And, you know, it just doesn't always seem to make sense. But when I, when I left Germany and kind of went through my first kind of recognisable, you know, deep depression, it was part of, of what my counsellor told me was, you know, you've never stopped to acknowledge the successes that you've had. You've just done it, taken it in your stride and then looked for what the next one was going to be. And so you've never built up this reservoir of self-belief and confidence to draw upon if things get difficult. It's always been, you know, analyse things if they go wrong and just accept things if they go right. And did you put a lot of that pressure on yourself, do you feel? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's probably, I think, partly where I think when I when I look at myself, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that doesn't make me sound big-headed, but you know, even that, I guess, in itself suggests the way that I think that I'm having to try and caveat what I'm about to say. <laughs> nobody else is benefit than my own, really. But you know, I think having been academically successful and being creative, then as much of those two sides of the brain can really complement each other in you know, in, and have done throughout my career, they can also fight with each other, you know, because there's the academic side of your brain wants to think things out and also wants there to be a right answer. You know, if, if I think of if I was an accountant or a chemist or whatever, there is, there's a right answer. It may be very difficult to find, but there's always, there's no ambiguity. Whereas you design stuff and you put loads of yourself into it, and there's no guarantee that you've done it right. You know, you can show it to people. And, you know, as much as those kits for the World Cup were, you know, we, we tested them in a low-velocity wind tunnel. They did get players to the ball faster. They were the fastest, lightest shirts of the tournament. But if you show it to somebody and they're like, that looks like shit, then that's their reality. It looks like shit. And, you, you know, to try and then argue with, you know, if you've got facts and figures, you know, well, this is the right answer. Is fine, but if it's just oh, I think it looks like shit, then to a certain extent it just comes down to a battle of wills then and it's it can be quite difficult. You haven't really got a, a job where you, you work through a pile of papers and at five o'clock you go home, you watch telly and you, you switch off. Did you did you struggle to switch off at times from from yeah. being a creative person in general? Yeah, I think I mean certainly I mean the the design industry is long hours whoever you work for and whatever role you have in it whatever level you're at it's long hours. Um I think partly because there isn't a, a right or wrong answer you've just got to keep going until you've got something that you're as happy with as possible. Um it was certainly a lot easier to switch off before laptops and mobile phones with with email on became a thing because it got to a point of like well now, I've got to go home now, and that was it. Whereas I think now, and you know, this isn't unique to my career at all. It's you're always at work because as long as you've got a works phone with your works emails in your pocket, whether that pressure is real, whether it's implied, or whether you're putting it on yourself, there's you know that there can be a real pressure to always be switched on, and that's that's hard. That's horrible. How can you you know you wouldn't dream of Right, here's, here's your new job and this is what we're going to pay you. And you've got to sit in this office all the time apart from when you're asleep. And even then, when you wake up, you'll wake up in the office. 
Whereas basically having a mobile phone with your work's emails on it, that's it. That's what you're doing. There's not been any bigger challenge really for anybody personally and and, all, and also in the work life than coronavirus. And how, how have you managed? Because you've been very open, uh, which we're going to come to about some struggles you've had, Rob. But how, how have you dealt with the, the last few months having a young family and, and, and all that's come with it? Badly, I would say. If I was being honest, I mean, yeah, it's hard. I'm used to working from home, so there's no change there. But having certainly at the beginning when nurseries and schools were shut, having a four-year-old and a two-year-old at home. And my wife had just started working as well a few weeks before lockdown. Um, so she then transitioned into into working from, from home as well. So we were trying to figure it out with, well, she's got to do two and a half days a week. So we'll split that out into half a day every day. And one of us would have the kids in the morning and the other one would have them in the afternoon um you know because we can't just we can't just leave them to watch tv because you know the little one still needs his nappy changing and they both still need feeding and one of them's got something the other one wants they batter each other and you know whatever else so we had to to be there with them and be present as well it you know you can't just sit and try and do half a job on a laptop with with the kids around so it was then well you know, they've got loads of energy left at the end of the day because they've not been out doing their usual things. So perhaps they're not going to bed as early as usual. So that can be frustrating. And then you've maybe got to try and finish your work off in the evenings. And it got to the point that, you know, I, I was working stupid late nights every night. You know, the miss is the same, really, just because the, the work needed doing and it was her time was being interrupted during the day. And it was just absolutely fraught you know from that perspective and then um you know from a on just on a personal level really for myself and for for kelly it's she's very outgoing and gets recharged by being around people so for her it was really difficult she was finding it hard um not being able to do that and then for me as much as I can go out and be a good laugh and people enjoy my company, I also I find that quite tiring. So I'm much more of a, an introvert, even though a lot of people think introverted means you're just quiet and sit in the corner. What it means is that you actually, you get your energy from being on your own. So I, I really cherish just having solitude when I need it and being able to be in my own space. And that just wasn't available to me at all for weeks and weeks. So there was, there was just nowhere to nowhere to hide from the constant pressure of, you know, I've got to get the work done. We've got to find more work to make sure we're making up for any contracts that that haven't materialised. We've got the kids at home. We've got to try and homeschool the eldest, although she's not even five yet, so she's not even really that arsed about wanting to sit down and work. We've got to try and look after and look out for each other. You know, me and Kelly, it was... Yeah, it was. It's, it's been the hardest experience I've had as a parent and certainly, you know, the work-life balance that we all strive for. It was just absolutely crackers. We ended up, um, yeah, doing a, a little bit of a Dominic Cummings scenario, but without being an absolute weapon about it where we got, um, not that he did, and obviously my legal advisor has, to ask me to point out that Dominic Cummings isn't a weapon and what he did was entirely legal and above board. Um, but we got uh, Kelly's cousin to to come up and 
uh, stay with us for a, a few weeks. Just she was on furlough, um, and we just needed somebody to help with the kids. It wasn't fair on them. We were a breaking point. You know, anybody out there who's been in our position and and didn't take that luxury or or didn't have that luxury, sorry, or is a single parent and has had to go through trying to hold down a job or their own business and having the kids at home. I mean, yeah, hats off to to anybody that's able to come out the other side of that because it's been, yeah, it's been intense. You've done a handful of tweets the way you've referenced depression and your own personal experience of depression. Do you remember a time before you were depressed or do you remember a moment when you became depressed? I think probably the first time that I was noticeably, I guess, distressed mentally was when I did kind of pass my 11 plus to, to get into, into grammar school. So I went to um, a grammar school in, in Birmingham initially, so I, I passed the exam at 11. But living in Sutton Coldfield at that time, we didn't go up to, to senior school until we were 12. So all my all my friends were still at middle school and, you know, playing for the football team and whatever else. And suddenly I'm then wearing a blazer and, and getting an epic bus and train journey into into Aston at the time to to go to this look like Hogwarts grammar school and they're talking about GCSEs already and whatever. And yeah, I was I was in a I was in a real bad way really. I mean I've I've always been so fortunate to have parents that have always told me that success is just being happy and and experiencing love and that's it. So even at that time, you know, I'd got into this incredibly prestigious school, but I was deeply unhappy. And so, you know, they had no qualms at all in in taking me out of that school and, and getting me a place back at um back at my middle school. So I only I only ended up spending I think a, a full term at that grammar school. And then when it was time to, you know, to to make the change locally and, and leave middle school then i passed the exam for the local grammar school and and went there instead and that was a lot easier because everybody else was doing it and i think if i look back over my childhood i think i've always i've always strived for change but always found it really hard which is part of where my thinking of the two sides of my brain kind of comes in where even as a little kid, like I'd only go to birthday parties if my mom would stay as well. Like I couldn't, I wouldn't really be left at a party. Um, but I wouldn't want to not go to it either. Um, and so, if I then think of the experiences that I've had, where I've found things really difficult, it has been where there's been a big change. And I think most of the, well, probably all the changes that have occurred in my life have been my own choice and it, it got to the point where you know I moved to Germany huge change and irrespective of the pressure or not it's I think the change was was a, a big factor in that but I knew I'd got to do it and then the same when I left Germany to go to to work in in Amsterdam that was um so that the girl that I'd moved out to to Germany with, um, you know, we we decided that we 
we wanted to get out of Germany and go and live somewhere different. But the relationship had not been in a good place for a long time. And so when it came to the move to Amsterdam, it was decided that I would go on my own, you know. And so I went out there and, and, and we split up. Um, and even though that was absolutely the right thing to do, it was difficult for me because it was change, even though I knew it was what I wanted. And the move to Amsterdam was difficult because it was change. And then the company had been bought out whilst I was on my notice period at Puma. So the job that I'd signed up for didn't really exist anymore. Uh, by the time I got there. So it was just a, a totally weird melting pot of an experience where, you know, that that was the the first and only time that I'd actually been signed off work with depression where it was just I couldn't face going in. I couldn't do anything. And I'd got a I'd got a season ticket at Villa Park um at that time. So this would have been like 2007-8 season. So I'd got a season ticket and I was flying home from Amsterdam for the home games. Um, I wasn't earning a fortune, but you could get cheap flights to and from Amsterdam. Um, and it was just getting harder to go back on a, on a Sunday. And it got to the point where I just didn't want to go back. Um, and, you know, I, I had to come to an agreement with the company that, you know, they'd had a role in, in what was happening in me not really having a, a job to go to by the time I got there. Um, so we figured it out. And during, during that time of, of being signed off work, I actually met my, my now wife, um, you know, and it, you know, I, I think everything happens for a reason. And that was a, a huge thing. So I think then having the opportunity several years later to, to move out to Vancouver was, was massive and you know just a, we knew it was going to be a once in a lifetime experience and it was another one of those of like i've got to do this um but i, I really prepped myself for it and i started having preemptive counseling before going as to just to help me figure out well, what might happen what's a realistic worst case scenario what if you do get homesick how can you help mitigate it and i was an absolute wreck for a week before going out there and then as soon as I arrived there, I was just, I was okay. I was fine. Um, so I think doing that work and focusing on it and acknowledging it was going to be something that would be hard for me, but that I wanted to do and that I was capable of doing and had done before really paid off. But it was only then when, um, when Kelly gave birth to our first child out in Canada and it was a super traumatic experience that, it kind of hit me again in that I'd got a whole new set of responsibilities and pressures and, um, you know, yeah, just a completely different perspective on life really as to me being like, well, I'm not just me that can do what's right for my career and whatever. Now I've got a, I've got a lot more to think about. So that was kind of the, the next time that there was a, a big issue with how I was feeling and my, my mental health. When was the first time that you actually saw any kind of professional help in terms of as you say therapy or counseling or going to a doctor or anything like that so yeah that, that was in amsterdam um and i was i was conscious that i wasn't feeling how i was supposed to feel um and i, I remember it really clearly that i had a, a a really nice house in the in the center of amsterdam and i was i was in the 
the kitchen and um, I must have been listening to some English language radio station and they, they said on the news that uh, Heath Ledger had committed suicide after um, after his role as, as the Joker. And it, I don't know, it just it punched me in the stomach. We were about the same age. I'd always loved his work. I was just like, you know, how close am I or not to that? You know, and I, I didn't know and I wouldn't say that I ever felt like I was close to it, but I definitely knew that, you know, it was a bit of a tightrope that I was on. And that was really the trigger for me to be like, right, I've got to, I've got to sort this out. I've got to take the, take the action. Um, so I went to see a doctor in, in Amsterdam and he wrote me a prescription and signed me off work. Um, and I was already speaking to an employment lawyer just because of the, the situation of the, the workplace. And, and he said, well, if you're off work, especially with mental health in, in Holland, you don't have to stay where you are. You can be wherever is going to be the best place for you to be. So the next day I just got on a plane and, and went back and went to see the, the GP near where mom and dad were living. And the first thing he did was like, he said, well, these tablets that you're on, we don't prescribe those in this country and we're going to have to wean you off them, even though you've only been taking them for three days. Cause I was just a, a wreck. I was like, spending all day just on the sofa just in a daze at, at mom and dad's um but then without them i i couldn't leave the house without holding hands with my mom i was like a 28 year old guy that had done all this seemingly amazing stuff and i was just broken um and the the gp recommended counseling um and i mean I've always appreciated what a fortunate position I was in then to be able to to pay for that privately because when he said there was like a six or eight week waiting list to go and see an NHS counsellor, I just couldn't I couldn't have done that. I don't know how anybody that's in such a position that they're like, I've got to go to my doctor and talk about this and every minute feels like an hour. And then to be told, well, you've got to wait six or eight weeks to to get the help that I, as a doctor, think you need is is crackers. And I'm I'm so lucky that I had the money available to me to be able to go and 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 see a counsellor. And you know, she helped me understand how I'd got to the place I was at, the fact that the job wasn't working out, and I'd not built this reservoir of self belief by reflecting on my successes, so that if something wasn't working out. It's fine. It's the job. It's not me. Uh, everything was still very instinctive and personal. She helped me with the the relationship. She helped me get my head around that it was what I wanted, and it was only change that I was reluctant for. And you know, it just gave me a completely different perspective that's helped me immensely over the years. And so since then, I've been really open about. I went to see a counsellor in Vancouver. I still go and see one once a month now and I'm open about it because people boast if they go and see a personal trainer but you know a, a counsellor is really just a personal trainer for your mental health so why would that be something that you would need to keep secret one thing that I read on your on your twitter which was which was, was not something I'd come across before was was about the um tinnitus yeah um and how is that something that you've suffered with 
for a while or is it kind of an on and off thing? How does it sort of work? Is it constant? Yeah, it's, it's constant. I think how much you recognise it varies depending on your own environment, your own symptoms. So I've had it um, in one ear for probably 10 years now. And it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint what may have caused it. Um, and there's so little really known about what causes it and certainly how to treat it. Um, I'm really fortunate that most of the time I can't hear it. I don't notice it. If I'm in bed, I can I can hear it because it's quiet, but it's not it's not loud enough that it's causing me an issue. Whereas some people, you know, they can't they can't go to sleep without a white noise machine on in the bedroom or in my mom's case, you know, she can barely hear the TV because it's so loud in her ears. Um, you know, so it, it is a, a really debilitating thing that I think more people suffer with than most people would realise. And there's some some, some quite uh, significant evidence to suggest correlation between tinnitus and uh, depression and, and and other sort of mental health issues. Yeah. It, 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 as you say that, it, to be honest, it's not something that had ever really occurred to me, but it, it makes perfect sense, the fact that you'd have that constant thing that'd be going on that would, would cause that much of an issue. In terms of your own personal experience, how has it affected your life, both on a, a personal and a professional level? Well, I think at first there was just the the difficulty of of coming to terms with it so first of all it was well what caused it and and again i was in a, a fortunate position where i had a job that got private health care so i was able to get referred to a specialist an eos and throat specialist so he took a look at it and it was mri scans and hearing tests and whatever else and you know you come out the the back end of that and it's like yeah, it's, it's just tinnitus. That's it. You know, might go, might go away. Might stay the same. Might get worse. The frequency of it might change because you people get different sounds. Some are like a really high pitched, uh, just constant squeal. Some people it's like the sound of white noise or like the ocean. You know, and it, and that was it. It was like, well, you know, here you go. Here's your here's your cards. You know, crack on with it. So it was. Obviously, it was, it was put to me a lot more nicely than that. He was very professional. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's like, well, okay, I've got this now. So what what happens? You know, what? how do I, how do I try and figure this out? Um, and the bigger – it doesn't really have a day-to-day impact on me as such, not compared to other people that I know where they are aware of it all the time. But for me, it's more – it's made me really reactive to sharp noises. So if one of the kids drops a piece of cutlery in the kitchen on the tiled floor, like that sharp noise is like somebody's just banged a nail into my ear. It really is sensitive to that. And if I go to places where there's a lot of random noise, and strangely I'm all right in places like clubs or football stadiums or wherever else, but more like we went into the, the arcade at new brighton beach a few weeks before lockdown and it was just a cacophony of random noise in there and it kind of sent me scatter i had to i had to go and stand outside because it was just too much which you know then i guess the knock-on effect of that was like well i'm 
nearly 41 years old. I shouldn't have to go and stand outside a, an arcade because it's, you know, too many random noises and I can't cope with it. And it's then you beat yourself up for a flaw that you've got through no fault of your own. You, you wrote to us and said that you'd, you think probably only your sort of closer friends know the sort of the stuff that you've just spoken through with us there and that sort of other people know about bits and pieces. And you said something that was that was really quite interesting. You wrote that you were happy to be as transparent and honest as necessary and that we could sort of ask whatever we liked. How? Why did you think it was so important to sort of be that honest about the stuff that you'd gone through and for, for, for people listening? I've got a, a reasonably large kind of follower base on Twitter pretty much through either being a Villa fan or talking about football kits and there's there's not many of those people that i really know in real life and it it would be quite easy to just look at you know the stuff that i've talked about whether that be meeting christo stoichkoff or pele or you know having a premier league footballer at my wedding because we've become good friends or you know, all these incredible name dropping clangs that i can i can do you know, to look at that and just think, oh, well, you know, he must be all right. And and I think you've got the perfect storm of it's, – and it's something that I've talked to my mum about a lot where she's, she's in her mid-80s now and she says – and she won't thank me for, for telling the world that. Um, but she'll say, well, you know, we we had a war when we were kids and then, you know, we, we had it hard after the war. And she'll say people didn't have – counseling and there didn't seem to be as much depression then and and we'll talk about the different pressures that there are in life now that you know yes things were very hard but you know everybody within a, a certain radius of your house were living the same life really you know and it was all hard and you were all in it together whereas now it's you know i, I can go within two miles of of more even within a mile of my house there's like social housing and two million pound mansions you know right on top of each other so that and and then you've got the advertising pressure and reality tv with reality and in inverted commas because so much of that's scripted you know and you we're encouraged to look at people of well, they've got an amazing life, you know. If you just buy this or do that or inject this or eat that or whatever it might be, you you can get closer to having that amazing life that they've got. Um, and I think for me, I, I mean, I even went through a spell, even relatively recently, of you know feeling quite almost guilty for the lifestyle that I've had, you know, and well. I went through a massive phase of having imposter syndrome of being, you know, how could I be designing football kits for World Cups? I'm just a, you know, a, a brummy that makes people laugh a little bit, you know. And so one of my biggest learnings at that point was I'd always kind of felt like, oh, I'm successful because I've got this good personality and one day I'll get found out. Whereas, you know, the reality was, my personality is part of my success, but it's how it's rolled into what I do for a living, whether that is um, resilience or empathy or humour or 
you know, striving to to help support and improve people around me, whatever that may be. That's not, you know, well, that's the only thing that's keeping me going because it is, but it's not a pretense. But I'd also just hate for if anybody was to look at me and think, wow, you know, I bet that he's got an amazing life. I bet that, you know, that must be easy. That must be something to aspire to. You know, it's we all face troubles. We all have to face sorts of things that none of us chose. None of us would ever choose, you know, through through my experiences of living abroad. There was a, a lot of times, particularly on a Sunday, that I'd be really envious of people that did work nine to five and would pop around to their mom and dad's for Sunday lunch every week. And I would only see my parents every three or four months, you know, so it's all, it's all relative. And I think it's important. Another thing I had to learn was that it, that it is important that you don't benchmark your feelings and your mental health against other people of like, well, you know, yeah, I have had and continue to have an incredible life. I'm, I'm very privileged, but that doesn't mean that I can't, feel down about things or find things difficult because it is it's all relative it's no good me thinking well there's you know there's people with cancer and there's you know people have got nothing because you know their their challenges are, are relative to them um and i think the world would be a better place if it was as easy as us all thinking like that and not needing to compare ourselves to other people either because they're deemed to have an aspirational lifestyle or their lifestyle's worse than mine, so I shouldn't feel bad. Welcome back. You're still listening to Man Marking. That was Rob Warner's interview. Quite a lot covered in that, a long and uh, an interesting story, really, and, and I think one with somebody who's got such a passion for what they do, and it really comes across, but almost that passion spilled over into anxiety and self-doubt and worry and all the other things and a lot of pressure that comes with that ryan you were obviously on the interview with us what were your kind of takeaway thoughts from it i think there's a a theme with with creative minds that it's often hard to switch off and that that can be the root cause of the problem and i think what he did was made himself very aware of that and he sort of tried to juggle his work-life balance to reflect that and he knew that he needed time to switch off and come away from it, um, spend weekends with his family. And I think he touched on the fact now he runs his own business, he could sort of set his hours. It wasn't about working himself into the ground. It was around sort of being successful, but still having time for himself and some self-love. Yeah. And I think that was very important. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things that he said was, was when you do like a creative job, like, like kit design, because it's not like right or wrong, so you can make a kit and it might take you five minutes because the design just comes to you or it might take five days because you, you keep coming back and going away and coming back and going away. And I think that's quite an interesting element of it. We touched very briefly on one part of the story before the interview and where he was, uh, Rob was very kind of honest about how difficult he's found it during lockdown and, and through the restrictions and him and his, his partner trying to balance childcare and working. And you kind of touched on you resonated with that, and that's obviously been something you and you and your partner have had to, to juggle with as well, haven't you? Yeah, it, it, it's not a it's not an easy thing, and it seems like a, a silly thing to moan about because, like, mm. they'll you know you can speak to one person, they'll just say, "Well, just get on with it, crack on, must be fine. You're at home, you're doing this. At least you've got a job." And you and like there is part of you that goes, "I'm quite lucky. 
yeah. get away from home. But then there's other part of me going, well, it's not much of a an environment for for either of us, like and the child, mm. <laughs> really. So, you know, you want your kid to be to be going out and learning, and and for the best, all the well in the world. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not a great teacher, mm. <laughs> so that's why that's why goes to nursery and stuff so it's difficult um i, I actually also uh, like this definition of, of being an introvert mm. which uh i didn't really think of i didn't really um kind of put it together with you know if you are that way inclined to gain energy from being that way yeah and it's not just oh, i want to be on my own kind of thing and, 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 and i think it's like often that. perceived as being maybe a little bit kind of shy and and, yeah. and sometimes I think people even take it as being rude almost don't they mm. and I think one thing that I think was apparent from Rob was that he took, as you say took great energy from his own company almost and I do think there is that kind of perception of well why don't you want to do this or why don't you want to do that why don't people want to speak and I think some people do just don't want to speak to, to, to people sometimes. I think that's fine. I think I think we all go through that that point, don't you? Where you, you just want to have like an afternoon to yourself and, yeah. and and go from there. And now more than ever, that's even more difficult, isn't it? Given that we're all obviously. Yeah, absolutely. We, yesterday, yeah. I just took myself for a walk. It was like pitch black, and I was like, I've been I felt trapped all week. I just I've, literally I've, went for a walk, and it was just like you get you get back in, bit of wind in your face and stuff, bit of music in your ears, and you're yeah. like. Oh, I feel better for that. I just got this image of Ryan with a lead on himself. Just kind of, <laughs> come back, heal, heal, heal. I am so fidgety that that's probably been the hardest thing for me working from home. Just me, sorry, come stuck. On. Yeah, <laughs> just feel trapped. My mum told me a story about me nan. So, um, my nan died a few years back. She was ninety six or something when she died. But when she was about mid eighty, she was still really active. Used to walk all the time and and what have you. Anyway, she. Um, she had a period where she couldn't, she couldn't get out the house or something. Apparently, and this was this was when she was much younger. This is when my mum was a kid, and at that time, obviously, it would have been kind of a different sort of time to now. And I think she was probably suffering from some form of mental health problems in terms of depression or anxiety, whatever it might be. And a lot of that was down to the fact that she was a housewife at that time. And she couldn't get out of the house much. She was very much stuck in a bit of a samey, samey routine. And she went, I think she went to see the doctor about something else and asked him about this. Not in the kind of framework of mental health at all, but just kind of like, just kind of mentioned in passing she was a bit bored or something. And the doctor was saying something about, you just need, you need to go out once a day. Like if you're in a position where you can't go out or you've got no actual reason to go out. You should always make yourself go out, even if it's just to walk around the block for five minutes, mm. just go outside. And it, it like for a number of different reasons and you kind of just demonstrated it there, Ryan, haven't you? And I think mm. particularly at this time, that's really important because so many of us are working at home. So many people are locked inside all day. And I know for a fact that if I'm working from home, unless I need to go to shop or go to Dills to buy cakes, then... I'll probably just stay inside all day. Yeah. And I think, as you say, just go outside, walk around the block, go and just change the scenery up a little bit, go and put your earphones in, switch your, switch off from your phone and from emails or whatever it might be and, and just get that break because yeah. it's enormous. And it's only a small thing, but it can make a massive difference to the rest of your day. Right, so I think we're all done there, lads, aren't we? 
yeah thanks for uh, thanks for your time as as usual and uh, and thanks to you for listening you've obviously been listening to man marking before we go if you have been affected by any of the the issues that we've we've spoken about we do want to put you in the direction of places like calm and also um the samaritans which have uh, a 24 7 hotline their hotline number is 116123 and you can call that 24 hours a day 365 days a year and you can find us on twitter at marking underscore man and don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads we will see you next time our next episode is out on friday which is another episode on under flat caps and bowler hats this one will be talking about brazilian legend garincha so that should be lots and lots of fun. So we will see you on Friday. Uh, yeah, take care. Take care of yourself. Take care of your friends and your family. And, and uh, yeah, keep asking where's the talking, lads. And we're going to leave you now with Rob Warner's quickfire. Favourite football memory as a fan? So that was, um, I went to Wembley uh, to see Villa. So we had the League Cup final against Leeds in 96. And then we had the League Cup final against Man United in 94. And, I mean, my dad was the reason I got into being a Villa fan. Um, His parents had been season ticket holders. But my dad was a milkman, so I had a season ticket with my best mate and his dad. And my dad had to work Saturdays. So I used to go to the matches with him a lot, but he couldn't get a season ticket with me at that time so when we got to the the cup final in 96 i got a ticket and he didn't because i was a season ticket holder and i managed to get him a ticket albeit elsewhere in the stadium and he'd never been to see villa or wembley even though he'd you know been a fan for you know since the since the 1950s um and so we we went to the game came out of the stadium and, and went round obviously old wembley met him around the other side of the stadium and when he saw us, like me and my me and my pal and his dad, he just started crying. And it was I've never seen my dad cry for anything other than, you know, real trauma, to be honest. Or at least certainly at that age I hadn't. Um, you know, so to see him crying tears of joy over something, it was yeah, I'll never, ever, ever forget that. I'll cling on to that moment forever. So, um, what's your favourite football kit of all time? Then it doesn't have to be one you've been involved in, just by sheer design and look. The England kit for Italia '90, which isn't going to be a unique answer, you know. And people would probably expect me to come up with something somewhat niche. But as a Villa fan at the time, and I was I was a young kid then. I was eleven when I started supporting us. We were crap and in the second division and. David Platt had signed from Crew, and then he, he was playing well in the first division and scoring goals. And he scored that goal against Belgium. And it was just, that was my first experience of being really connected to the England team because as much as it's nice to support the England team, certainly for me, I always appreciate it more if there's a Villa player in the, in the team or in the squad. And so whether it's related back to David Platt scoring that goal against Belgium, I don't know, but that's my favourite shirt from a, nostalgia perspective why do footballers insist and i tend to only see it at the top level on cutting holes in the back of their socks so that would be because of the way that that socks are knitted um particularly football socks um because to be able to get 
the designs and, and badges and whatever else into them. They have to be knitted in a certain way. Quite often now they are polyester and or nylon in the shaft of the sock, which is the bit that comes up your leg above the ankle, and then cotton on the bottom of the sock for comfort and to, to help avoid uh, blistering. So they're quite complex to make, which can then restrict the amount of stretch that goes into them. And potentially why you see at that higher level is you think of the size of the calves on some of those players. You know, I mean, some of them are Kyle Walker being a prime example. I mean, he's basically an Olympic sprinter in football boots. So they will be cutting the holes in just to alleviate the pressure that there isn't enough stretch in those socks. If Villa are on a good run, as rare as that is, have a look at Jack Grealish's boots. They're absolutely battered. And you can only assume that it's um, just superstition, that he won't change his boots. I mean, the the one that we worked with at Puma that was the most superstitious was uh, DDA Deschamps. So when I was working at the brand, he was um, he was coach of Monaco. And they got to the, the Champions League final against Mourinho's Porto at the time. And we wanted to put them in next season's shirt for the final to you know to give that a, a, a big airing because it was part of a new a big new concept. And he wouldn't have it; he wouldn't entertain the idea at all because they'd got to the final in the kit that they'd got, and so that was what they were going to wear in the final. And and he had been a Puma athlete during his career, and apparently in the World Cup final where he was captain of France, one of his Puma King boots was held together with duct tape because he would not. He'd worn them for every game, so there was no way he was not going to wear them in the final. You know, just that level of ability to manipulate a football in you know, something you you could have pulled out of a bin. It's just mind blowing. I mean, I'm getting bombarded by Danny sending me text messages of Jack Grealish's booty, and I don't understand how anyone could walk in them. Like, <laughs> They're like, absolutely <laughs> barbaric. They're ridiculous. <laughs> it, honestly, there's there's my, the boots that I wear to play footy on a Monday night. I've I've got a slight rip on the back of them. And I've been spending the day on Pro Direct Soccer looking for new ones. And then I look at Jack Grealish and I think, I, I think I might be all right for another 40 years with them. Yeah. Look at the for them. Has yeah. a kit you've ever designed bit ever been ruined by having to put a sponsor on it? Yeah. Yeah. There's always, there's one that I always refer to, which was um, we did a Lazio kit. I think it was for 2004 or 2005. And they'd always been sponsored by Siemens Mobile whilst I was designing their kits and a few years before. And you knew what you were getting with them, where it was a nice rectangular logo. It was in white. Sometimes the M would be in a contrast color, usually red or something, dark navy. Just the best sponsor logo you could ever work with. And we and we did this kit. Um, and it was my first kind of season of doing a full concept and i was i'd put loads of work into it i was really happy with it so it was worn by the teams at the euros in 2004 so i guess lazio would have worn it in 2004-5 probably and the third kit was black and then it got kind of this electric version of lazio blue shot through the inserts and the stitching and without a sponsor logo on it looked absolutely cracking i was so proud of it and they, we knew they were between sponsors and they've showed up to start the season. And the sponsor had been applied locally because it was done so late. And they'd, they'd signed a deal with 
a company called Palmer Cotto, who I think make Palmer Ham. And the logo was in like a mustard yellow and maroon. And it was just dreadful. It would have looked nice on a packet of, you know, medium priced Palmer Ham. <laughs> black and electric blue football shirt. It just looked dreadful. Final has been won by Aston Villa. 